Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 21st, 2018, and this is episode 2223 of the Survival Podcast. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, this is a listener feedback show, as always on Monday morning, so we are going to cover your feedback. Quick announcement here about tomorrow. Tomorrow I will be doing a Rewind show, <clears throat> and the reason I'm doing that is a joyful occasion. I'm not going on vacation, which also is a joyful occasion that will occur in June. <clears throat> no, this is actually a really cool thing, and I, I wouldn't miss it for the world, so you guys are going to get a Rewind. <clears throat> As many of you know, my son uh, married his current wife about four years ago. I actually presided as the wedding officiate, as Reverend Jack, uh, over that wedding. And uh, we were soon blessed uh, thereafter with a granddaughter named Tegan, who's here every day. Tegan has an older brother, and that older brother's uh, name is Braylon. Now, when my son met his wife, Braylon was already there, kind of like I was. So Matthew has stepped up as a stepfather, which is a difficult position to be in. However... An opportunity came up about a year ago uh, because the, the, the boy's birth father, we'll just say, has issues for my son to formally adopt Braylon as his own child and have full legal rights to him as such. And it's quite a long process. You would think a situation like this where the birth father's fine with it, etc., would be relatively easy. It's actually quite a complicated and expensive thing. Uh, but we helped them work through it, and uh, the official court day where it actually gets signed into law by the state is occurring tomorrow. So we'll be going to the courthouse with them, uh, and then that evening we'll be going out to eat. So I decided that it just made sense to go ahead and just knock out a rewind for you guys. And uh, so that's where I'll be tomorrow. <clears throat> Just so you know. So the occasional person that I get smart-ass emails from about, hey, you just throw a rewind. You can go blow it out your ass for real this time. Anyway, um, what are we going to talk about today? Well, again, a listener feedback shows us where you send me emails with your questions, thoughts, etc. And put TSPC in the subject line. I have today, once again, no one wants to talk about the real issue with the school shootings. Uh, what, what... What to do when you have debt and a 401k plan and are not sure how to move forward. And a listener suggests a good affordable carry pistol. Awesome thoughts on that. Uh, dealing with soil pH issues. Thoughts on vehicle conversion versus a side-by-side -side UTV. Dealing with property that has poor drainage. How cooking garlic affects its health benefits. Listener feedback on the high-lift water pump with solar. Some thoughts on that. Um, a question on making non-alcoholic mead. And you probably don't want to, but I'll give you some other thoughts on it. And How I have always sold my houses fast at asking in any market. I have a question on that, and it kind of ties in with today's item of the day. So we'll get to all of that in just a bit. Before we get to your feedback for me, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, RidgeWallet.com. I'll tell you, I have, I have really become a huge fan of RidgeWallet. Uh, it's, it's just 
a minimalist way to carry the things that you need to have with you, which is primarily your ID, your credit cards, right? Um, I was one of these people really guilty of having like the thick wallet, not because it was full of cash. I actually carry my cash independent of my wallet, uh, just as an added security measure. Um, it was always just all the crap that I had in there, and you never realize how much crap you carry around until you take your wallet and say, okay, I'm going to pare it down, and what comes out of here, and what do I really need to keep? And you realize you have like 80 receipts that you shoved in there and stuff like that instead of getting them off. And this is bad for your posture. It really is. You sit in your vehicle, and I was always good about that. I take my wallet out of my pocket when I was in a vehicle. I have a little cubby hole you can cram it into where you really can't see it very well. Uh, and then I would always find myself forgetting to get my wallet when I got out of my truck and ending up in a store with a cart full of crap and having to run outside to get my wallet. Uh, Ridge Wallet has made all that go away. Plus, it's lined to be protective against RFID sniffing technology. Of course, everything has an RFID tag in it now, which makes you susceptible to identity theft. So it just makes sense in so many ways. You check it out at RidgeWallet.com. And let me remind you guys that uh, you do get a discount on all Ridge Wallet purchases as an MSB member. Next up today, JM Bullion. You know, silver and gold to this day have the longest track record as stores of wealth in humanity's history. They are also the most anonymous form of wealth and most easily transferred form of wealth that you can have as long as you can look the other person in the eye and hand them something. It's an incredible way to preserve wealth, to have a wealth assurance program, and to have a wealth, a form of wealth that you can hand down to your heirs that no one needs to know anything about. And I'll leave it there. Now, when you're going to buy silver and gold, you should think about what makes it such a good investment in the first place. And that is that silver is silver and gold is gold. As long as it's not some counterfeited crap out of China or something like that. If it's a silver American eagle, it's a silver American eagle, it's a silver American eagle. You get it. So what that means is it doesn't make any sense to pay more for your silver or gold from one party versus another. You should buy from the most affordable and most dependable party. That's JM Bullion, where I can actually talk to the president if there's ever a problem, and there hasn't been for years. And he will talk back to me, and if there is a problem, there were a few when we first started out together with some shipments getting screwed up. He always made it right, and he always thanked me for letting him know. And then you have pricing that's better than Monix and Atmex. How about free shipping on all orders? That's JM Bullion. How about a discount? MSB members, you guys get a discount at JM Bullion. There's no place in the world that you get a discount on silver and gold except here at the MSB and with our partner, JM Bullion. When I'm stacking my silver, I go to JM Bullion, and you should too. Check them out today at jmbullion.com. Next up, let's take a look at a year from history. We have courting the client kings in the year 130 A.D., Traveling to the Eastern Empire, Hadrian, current emperor, calls a conference of the Eastern client kingdoms. The Eastern clients range from the larger semi-independent Armenia to small city-states like Palmyra. The Senate wished that Hadrian would just annex these lands and saw the foreign aid that the empire provided these kingdoms as a bribe, which it was. Hadrian plays no attention to the Senate and is proud that he's accomplished more by doing nothing than past emperors have accomplished through war. My take by David Verne. The Romans had client kingdoms for many reasons. Some of the larger kingdoms, like Armenia, acted as buffer zones against hostile countries. Most of the smaller eastern client kingdoms were important trade stations in the desert. And as long as they kept their trade routes safe, were allowed almost total independence except for officially owing allegiance to Rome. 
Client kingdoms had always been around, but during this period of the empire, they were becoming more important in the empire's defense plans. The Roman legions could still beat any army they fought in open combat, but that would slowly change as their enemies would begin using their own tactics against them. And it really kind of sums up, it's easier to catch flies with honey than vinegar. right? Instead of going out and beating the shit out of people and then having to lord over them, and have them resent you and always feeling that, hey, you know, these guys aren't supposed to be here. One day maybe we can overthrow them. Basically what you have is a strategic alliance. You've created an ally rather than an enemy. And then you have a lot of what you would call soft power with that ally. And this is the Roman Empire. I'm not necessarily saying it's what we should do, but I'm saying it is what we do in the United States today. We are an empire. The United States is an empire. And anybody that says that we're not an empire just doesn't know what an empire is or is lying about it. It's one or the other. And we evoke most of our power in the form of soft power. In other words, we don't necessarily have to drop a bomb on someone or even threat to drop a bomb on someone to, to get them to do what we want, to get them to play ball with us the way that we want, to play, they, you know, we want ball played. And a lot of it still goes back to trade. We are not the biggest country in the world in population. We are still the biggest market in the world as far as dollars. And it doesn't matter how you measure them, if you measure them in dollars or yen or rupees, it doesn't matter. We are the biggest financial market in the world. And even if we weren't, we're big enough that we matter. So if you want to do business with the United States, then you have to do business the way the United States wants you to do business. And this is one of the ways we, we use power that's, again, called soft power over other nations. And it allows us to do things sometimes for good and sometimes for evil. But it does allow us to do things like right now with the Iran deal being dropped by President Trump. And everybody's like, well, he can't do anything now. He has no power. Bullshit. The United States has power. The United States has power. And it, it is probably the case that you will see incredible sanctions go against Iran. Now, I'm not judging whether we should or shouldn't. I'm just telling you that's what you're probably going to see. And the reason is, when you go, they say, well, we, all these other nations agreed to this deal that John Kerry did under Obama. Bullshit. All these other nations want good relations with the United States. So if the United States leads, in most instances, these other nations will follow. And it, it is an incredible amount of power. And there's an old saying that it makes me think of. Power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. My take by Jack Spierko. Well, with that, let's go ahead and uh, get into your feedback. I want to start out with talking about this recent school shooting in Santa Fe, Texas, which is down near Galveston. Um, once again, we see the two camps forming and the two-camp trap. There's only two things being said about this, and... If you'll notice, the anti-gun people aren't quite wrapped up in the spin like they usually are, because in spite of the large body count and large number of injured here, the shooter didn't have an evil assault rifle. And of course, most of the anti-gun people would like to ban all guns or make them nearly impossible to own, but they, they, the left is actually really good at the process of incrementalism. And they know the scary assault rifle is what you do first, so this kind of comes out of time for them. But you have that camp, guns are bad, guns are evil, we should make guns banned. Even though the guns were legally owned by this, this kid's father, and he stole them, so that was a breaking of the law. He cut the barrel off the 870 shotgun, so that broke the law. 
Uh, so laws clearly don't prevent people that want to do bad things from doing those things, especially when it's as bad as murder. So if you're willing to murder somebody, you're probably willing to get a gun illegally. It, 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 one is a little bit bigger of a crime than the other. So you have that camp, but then you have the other camp, and I'm, I'm so tired of this. We need to have, you know, we need retired Army veterans in every school on every floor. Well, first of all, there were armed resource officers at this school who did engage the shooter, who, who definitely saved lives, one of which was injured and taken to the hospital, shot several times by this, this student. Um, so that was there. Armed security was there. And armed security didn't run away and hide like they did in Florida. They went and did their job. Now, personally, I think that they were too concerned with capturing this kid. Um, and now that it, he is captured, I hope we can learn from him, and I'm glad that he was. But when you start shooting at people, I'm not trying to capture you. I'm killing you. And I think the reason that this, these officers were injured is because they were trying to cut a deal with them. And we'll even talk about that here in a minute, about actually what was going on. But you start shooting at me, you die. And... You know, an untrained kid with a shotgun and a revolver should have been relatively easy to take out overall. Now, I don't know that for sure. I'm surmising that, and I'll, I'll give the benefit of the doubt to the law enforcement officers that are heroes in this situation that maybe he wasn't. But in general, yeah, probably should have been. Um, but you have that camp. More guns, more guns, more guns. Security checkpoints, metal detectors. It doesn't matter the cost, you know. And, and what you have there is two camps of people that have a completely different opinion about the right to keep and bear arms and both justifying their position within this microcosm. Let's talk about why the people that want to turn our schools into more prison-like situations than they are are wrong. And I do believe they are wrong. And I'll explain why. And I think when I'm done with this, you'll understand exactly where I'm coming from. And I think most of you, anyway, will agree with me. We don't need to talk about why the people who want to ban guns are wrong. I think that if you're in this audience, we probably all know why they're wrong. And we know they're going to keep trying to do what they're doing. But, but this, it, to, to successfully win in this situation, you need a better idea than bad guns. Here's why let's put armed security and lock down the schools like prisons and give them the same kind of security federal buildings have is a bad idea. There's a couple reasons. Number one, it's not practical. Some of these schools have thousands of students. You have to get them in the door and out the door every day, and specifically in the door. And if you think about airlines and what and everybody's like, well, after 9-11, we changed the I heard all this is the, the parrot head talking crap, parrot mouth talking crap. I heard all weekend. After 9-11, we changed the airports and we you know we got security and blah 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 blah. And what's a line like at an airport? Where there's multiple gates and multiple highly trained personnel, and by the way, enough money from voluntarily paying customers to fund all this shit. Okay, you schools are extorted money, a state run institution. It's not like you can just raise the pro oh I guess you can raise the property taxes to pay for all this shit. But let's go apart from there why this is a problem. Little Timmy goes to kindergarten. Little Timmy goes to kindergarten. Kindergarten they have an entryway that looks like an airport where all little Timmy shit is scanned. And maybe somebody with gloves touches little Timmy in places they probably shouldn't. Just like at the airport since that that's what we're supposed to emulate. Little Timmy has to start going to school about 45 minutes to an hour earlier every day. Just to get little Timmy through the damn door. Now, by the time we get little Timmy through the damn door, there's a whole bunch of kids been at school already for 45 minutes. 
Because little Timmy was last in line and they were first in line. What are those kids doing for all that period of time? Well, they're probably contemplating the fact that it's perfectly normal to have all your shit searched everywhere you go. So what happens, let's, let's forget the logistics for a second. And we take, and in our schools, we put metal detectors and people that check every person that comes in and comes in and goes with no expectation of privacy whatsoever. We, we raise a generation of those children. What kind of country do you think we have after that? How do you think those kids are going to feel about intrusions into privacy, as if we already didn't have enough problems with that? Do we really want to train our children that it's reasonable that some man from the government inspect you when you go to school? And therefore, if they inspect you when you go to school, and you have no rights to privacy, you have no rights to yourself, then what rights do you have, and where do you have them? Then is it not okay for the same people to do the same thing because you want to go to a shopping mall or a park? Do you see what I'm saying? We're If we do this, we will condition within one generation the new people in charge of our country to live in a police state. And it won't work. It won't work because if it was me and I was some crazy kid that was all screwed up from whatever and I wanted to kill a bunch of people and you made it hard for me to get into the school with the gun or wh whatever I'm going to use to kill kids with, when you have all those big lines of kids, I'll just kill them there. You just change the place that the kids are targeted. This is stupidity. This doesn't logistically work. It doesn't economically work. And all we would get out of it if we managed to skin that is a generation of children trained that it's okay to have a police state. The problem is the schools. We're told, well, there weren't any red flags with this kid. Oh, I don't know. So him posting a freaking photograph on Facebook of a trench coat that looks just like the trench coat that the kids in Columbine used with all kinds of shit on it, like Samurai Warrior stuff and uh, communist stars and stuff like that, right after he had posted a picture of a t-shirt that said, Born to Kill, that wasn't a red flag or a warning sign that something was wrong? Well, he was well-liked, and he was a football player, and he wasn't bullied. I don't know, a fellow kid on the school, and I have an article where you can read all this, but a kid that played football with him said, and let me... Let me quote exactly, let me get the, I'm going to read this part out of the article for you. Jeremy Servin, whose son played junior varsity football with the suspect, said he had been teased and bullied by football coaches and classmates. The accused shooter played uh, defensive tackle. Coaches would say that he stunk and smelled like crap, Servin said. Hmm. Another teammate, Tyler Ray, 18, said the alleged gunman was relatively quiet but had a good attitude according to the Oxford American Statesman. Huh. So, it sounds like... And like, who... What father of a fellow player would come out and say that this type of thing happened if it did not right after something like this happened? This sounds... Now, of course, the school's completely denied it. Oh, we have nothing to do with this. Uh, this is a complete fabrication. But why would this guy come forward and say, hey, this kid played football with my son? 
The coaches said he smelled like shit. You know, being teased by a coach, that sucks. Now, maybe it wasn't that way. I don't know. When I played football, coaches would say stuff to you like that all the time, but he did it to everybody. He didn't single a person out. I think it depends on how that was. He also had a big problem with a girl who he had unhealthily pursued, is what it sounded like, but then she rebuked him in the middle of a class, which I can understand why she would. So the upshot of this article, though, is that they have reports now that this kid made statements that he specifically didn't shoot kids he liked because he wanted people left to tell his story. Hmm. Well, that's interesting, too. He's worried about a story. He actually planned on killing himself, but he didn't have the nerve to do it in the end. In fact, there's one girl who said that he said the following. She was hiding while this was going on, and he said as follows to the police. I'll surrender, but I need you all to talk to me. I can't hear you. I think I've blown my eardrum out. Can y'all get a megaphone? Don't get near me. I'll come out to y'all, she, told, she said to the police. Uh, then he said, give me a second, I'm thinking. And while he said that, you could hear him reloading the gun. And then the cop would step closer and he would shoot. And he said, don't get closer to me, she said, adding that after a few minutes he did give himself up. Officials said the suspect had a clean record prior to Friday's attack. He didn't have a criminal record. So... He's, hauled, he's held up against the police here. And he's making a deal to come out, but he's still shooting at him whenever they get close to him. And he's reloading his gun. And you know what he's thinking about doing. He's thinking about blowing his brains out. So here's what you have, yet again. A young man, through some series of events in his life, so tortured that he wants to kill himself. And he doesn't have the guts to do it. Clearly he didn't have the guts to do it, or he would have done it at this point. And what he thinks is, if I'm hurting, I'll take others with me. And this is what he's really thinking. Since I can't make myself do this, when I put myself in this position, I'll be able to do it then. And it turns out he couldn't. And we have an opportunity here. And it's the same thing we should be doing with the shooter from Florida. These kids, and we don't need to make them famous for it. Some people misunderstand me when I say this. And it doesn't mean they should get off the hook. It doesn't mean they shouldn't go to prison possibly for the rest of their lives. And I think that's probably what should happen is the rest of their lives in prison. They should never walk free again. I'm not saying anything takes away from that. These kids should be studied. These kids should be studied to understand what went wrong, when it went wrong, and what could have kept it from going wrong. Now, we don't want to do that because in our hearts as a society, we know what went wrong is school. That's what went wrong. School went wrong. And we have conditioned these kids to a point where they're losing their shit over things they shouldn't lose their shit over. This young guy that works for me. Let me tell you a story that recently happened. I sent him to get some rock for my driveway. He comes back. He opens the tailgate on the truck. Now, tailgates are made to come off trucks. I don't know if you know that or not. But since there was a lot of weight up against the tailgate, when he opened it, the tailgate popped out on the one side. Now, this is you know 10 seconds of work to fix. He's losing his shit. 
I didn't mean it. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. Like that. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. I, I didn't mean it. Okay, so what happens to a kid that that's, that, that's men, that mentally weak? This is not even a problem. It sounded like he, he accidentally severed somebody's femoral artery and they were bleeding out on the ground. What happens? We have a generation of kids like this. When they're teased by their coach, when they're embarrassed by girls, most of them deal with their shit and get through it. And this is a problem people have, and I really think some of you need the shit smacked out of you to get this through your damn head. You say, well, I was picked on, I was bullied, and I turned out fine. It doesn't mean the square root, and I'm going to say a word I don't usually say on the show, it, because you need to freaking hear it. It doesn't mean the square root of fuck all that you got through it. It doesn't mean the square root of fuck all period, that some other kid got through it. It doesn't mean the square root of fuck all that it didn't used to happen. It doesn't mean shit that it didn't used to happen. What matters is it is happening now. So we can all sit around and talk about how much we were much bigger badasses back in the day, or we can fix the fucking problem. Do you understand that? And putting a whole shitload of armed people on every floor in every classroom of a school won't fix the fucking problem. And banning this particular gun because the handle looks scary won't fix the fucking problem. The only thing that's going to fix the fucking problem is to look the problem in the square fucking eye. Do you got it? I'm sorry I have to be that blunt, but some of you need to hear it. America needs to hear it. The problem is, if you treat people like criminals, they will behave like criminals. If you treat people like they are in prisons, they will behave like they are in prisons. So making the prison-like schools more prison-like won't fix the problem. We have to take an honest look at this. We have to take an honest look at this. We should make it comfortable for kids who are at this level of screwed up to say, I'm screwed up, help me. We should start teaching kids how to do shit again. And stop pressure. I'm telling you, some of the stuff that's causing this doesn't seem like it's related, but it is. When you have kids freaked out that they might fail a standardized exam that actually doesn't really affect them, they're just told that it does and they're dumb enough to believe it, and they're, they're crying over it, some fraction of them are going to snap their shit. Now, what happened with this particular incident was the way that things went down in Columbine changed forever the mindset of our nation. And we talk about this shit over and over and over and over and over again, and all this, this has become a thing that people do, shooting a bunch of people. In the minds of our youth, this is something that people do. And part of it is the damn hype by the media over-exaggerating this, because I, I keep hearing these numbers people are making up about how many school shootings there are, and when one gang member shoots another gang member outside of the school, that's not a school shooting. When a school resource officer at a school inside a correctional facility accidentally discharges his gun, that's not a school shooting. When they say school shooting, you know what they mean. Well, when these kids hear this, and when most people hear this, they, they picture of every day somebody's blowing up a bunch of kids at a school. And that goes into the hearts and souls of these, these, these young people who have problems. And since it's now a thing, some of them will take that, that, that step in that direction. This kid modeled, uh, Dylan Cleburne or whatever the other kid's name is from Columbine, modeled what they did to a T. 
down to the clothing and the explosives. And he did it with a sawed-off shotgun, a pump shotgun, and a revolver? See, there's another thing here. I don't know if you've ever reloaded those things, but unless you're like really, really trained, this, is a, this is a, takes some time to do. I don't know, maybe he was good at keeping that magazine full. I don't know. But I just, I, it seems to me like there was probably opportunities, if people were trained right, to stop him. And I'm including other students. This is not kindergarten. This was a high school. A lot of those kids are bigger than you and me. We don't have the right mindset to survive. But again, if you're crying because of a test, and I, and I swear to God, you guys did our, well, well, I was this way, I was that. You, first of all, you're full of shit. All these people talk about how badass they were back when they were kids. You're full of shit. I'd like to go get some of you that say that and find your yearbook picture and see what kind of badass you weren't. But it doesn't matter. What matters is the way these kids are now is not their fault. We did it. We did it to them. Because they're not in charge of anything. How can you blame them for the fact that they don't know how to do shit when we used to provide a way that kids learned how to do shit and now they don't have it anymore? Are they supposed to make their own way to learn? And maybe teaching them to do that wouldn't be a bad idea. We have to solve this problem. First of all, we should not have high schools with thousands of kids in them. It's too big. It's too hard from a standpoint of security, provide security. We really shouldn't. But what's going to happen if we don't fix this problem? You don't think this shit's going to keep happening at colleges? We have 20, 30, 40,000 students on a campus? You, are you going to have armed guards everywhere on college campuses? Are you going to have... I mean, see what I mean? This, if you start one place and start taking this path, then it becomes the solution. So the solution is either to screw everybody's rights and the millions of armed people who are responsible gun owners in America and take what they have away and not fix the problem, or turn the whole damn country into a complete police state and maybe not take away people's guns. Because if you create that police state, eventually it will lead to the guns being taken away. And then you have a police state and no guns, which is why we have the guns in the first place. It's not for shooting deers. Sorry, it isn't. Or you can actually say, for the love of God, can we please look at the actual problem and do something about the actual problem? Can we please understand that our children are hurting enough to kill themselves and each other? Can we still look at the, the thousands of kids that die every year, that no one talks about, that hang themselves with a belt or shoot themselves in the head? or drown themselves, or eat a bottle of pills. Thousands and thousands every year. How about the tens of thousands that try and fail to commit suicide because it's a cry for help? How about the hundreds of thousands that probably think about it, but don't do it? Can we look at that? Can we stop pretending that's not there? And then can we actually accept that these things are linked to each other? That they are linked to each other? You know, I said... When the one happened in Florida, the kid planned to kill himself, but I have no corroborating evidence for that. I just feel it's probably the case. He did not intend to survive. We know this kid intended to die. That was his, that was his plan, to end up dead at the end of this. And, and, and when I hear people talk about these school shooters like they're just complete shit, 
and they're just crazy lunatic animals. No, this was a kid with dreams. This was a kid that played football. This was a kid who had friends. Somewhere in it all, he cracked. But if he had eaten a bottle of pills or slit his wrist with a razor blade, you wouldn't even know his name. You'd have never heard about it unless you lived in his, in his town. And then maybe you wouldn't have heard about it anyway. And the way the media covers this, I, this is why I'm like, we need to just turn off, turn off TV. Stop. They're already irrelevant. Let's make them completely and fully irrelevant. Let's stop using them at all. Because I want you to think about this. About 90 people a day, on average, in the United States die in cars. What if we treated highway... What if every day they came on and said, 93 Americans today died on our highways. We have to make sure this never happens again. And they did that every day. They, I know people say well, it's not. It's, it's a false correlation. No, it's not. I'm not talking about. I'm not using the cars are more dangerous than guns argument here, even though it's true. It's not really germane to the situation. It's the coverage. If they covered auto accidents and the body count auto accidents, the way they cover school shootings, children would be terrified to leave their house in the morning and get in a car. The media has blood on its hands. The media and the way they've handled these shootings has created more of them. It's uncomfortable, but it's true. They've made it seem so commonplace that it takes less of a trigger to push a kid over. And let me tell you something. If we don't stop this shit, if we don't address this problem, if we don't stop hyping this crap and making like there's more of it than there is, there will be more of it. It will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's going to be easier and easier for a disturbed person to hit the trigger point and be willing to do this. Once somebody does something, other people do it even though they shouldn't. You see a garbage can. It's full to the top. There's no more room for garbage. Most of the people walk past it. One guy sticks his can up on top, it falls to the ground. He looks at it, smirks, and walks away. Somebody sees it, they throw there, and next thing you know, there's garbage all around the garbage can. And people that wouldn't have done it now do it because other people did. I know it's a much smaller infraction on society, but it's the same dynamic. And when you take it across millions of children in these prison-like institutions, you're going to get more of this. I know a lot of you didn't want to hear it that way. I'm sorry. I'm telling you flat out, this is the way things are. And, and I, I don't know how to fix it, but I know where we need to start. How we handle our children, how we teach our children, how we train our children, and how we run our schools. Those, th those four things are the four most important things if you want to prevent this from happening again as much as possible. And you have to let go of something. I, our own governor said it. I, I Just shut up. Stop saying it. We're going to make sure this never happens again. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. There will always be times when bad people kill lots of people at one time. And occasionally that place is going to be a school. It is going to happen again. You could ban every gun on the planet. It's still going to happen. Some kid's going to get in a truck and drive it through a crowd of kids waiting to get into one of your security checkpoints. It's going to happen again. We need to learn how to, we need to learn how to understand it, to predict it, to intervene before it happens, and to fix the screwed up screw job we've done on the minds of our children. And I'm going to go on to something else before I blow a freaking gasket. This comes from Mark. It's a 401k question. That should get me off of my rant. Okay. 
I was wondering if I could get your thoughts on the following ideas regarding a 401k, withdraw it deposited into a Roth IRA, withdraw and pay the remaining credit card debt, or withdraw and use it as a down payment on a house. Details. I'm leaving a job in August, and my family and I are moving from New Jersey to Georgia as a walk to freedom. I currently have more than $50,000 in my 401k. To be clear, it's not money I've deposited, but all deposited by my employer as part of my union contract. I still owe approximately $17,000 in credit card debt after paying off about $15K in the, last, in the past year or so, and I have no other debts. My wife has about $30,000 in student loans and a few small loans and a plan to be debt-free in two years. She does have a fair amount of savings, though I have only a small savings balance since I've been aggressively paying off my credit cards. Admittedly, I do need to boost my emergency savings. We have a daughter who's approaching two and a child due in July. My initial thoughts is simply to move the 401k into a Roth for its inherent benefits. I'm going to stop you there. I love that idea, Mark, as long as you have a Roth 401k. If it's a Roth 401k, you can move it to a Roth IRA. If it's a conventional 401k, you move it to a conventional IRA. All right? Since it's all money contributed by your employer, my guess is it's not a Roth, and you've never paid taxes on it, and the impact to you would be far greater if you take the money out now than if it were actually a Roth. So there you go on that. You have to... Uh, but it all started to occur to me <clears throat> I could use it in other ways. I could take a full withdrawal and don't roll over. I'll be left with more than 30000 and that would easily cover my outstanding credit card balance. With a bit left over, I could put into a Roth or savings account. I'd be debt-free and have a self-imposed monkey off my back. I also then thought about using the money from a full withdrawal to combine with my wife's savings to use as a down payment for a house when we find one down there together. It would likely mean much lower mortgage payment, and we might be able to erase the debt even faster and rebuild savings. I respect your opinion. If at any time you feel the need to reach out through the microphone and smack me on the side of the head, please feel free to do so. Okay, see, here's what I'm going to tell you to do, Mark. You're leaving the job, so you have to do something. You can't just leave the money there. Roll it into the appropriate IRA. That's what you do. Now, I'm not saying that you might not eventually make the decision and say, you know what, screw Jack and his advice to actually preserve my retirement savings, which I've, I've, I've actually accumulated no retirement on my own. If it wasn't for the fact that my employer gave me a retirement plan, 100% of my retirement wouldn't exist at all. And Jack's telling me to preserve that. Screw him, I want to do this anyway. But seriously, here's the reason, Mark. Once you do this... In other words, take the withdrawal. It's done. You can't put it back. You can't change your mind. You're going to take the hit. You're going to take the penalty. And once you've taken that penalty, it is what it is, and there's nothing you can do about it. So it's like when you were a kid and you had no backsies or no take backsies or something like that, you know, no trade backs. That's what it's like. Like, that's it. You did it. And now the government is going to take their piece You're going to have what you have, and that's it. And so you just took a $20,000 hit, and you've wiped your retirement savings to zero. However, if you continue your path of paying off your debt and keep this money, and when you make your move, you roll it into an IRA, and when you find that house, you just say, you know what, I just can't come up with the money for the down payment Without this, well, then you can take it out then. You've preserved your options. Where if you do it now or you do it in August, right when you leave your employer, you have eliminated your options. In other words, every option you laid out, if you roll it into an IRA, you still have that option. Okay? 
Uh, your all, other option is, okay, if you don't pay off the credit card debt with it, great. Figure out how much you need to take to be able to keep the 17 you owe on the credit card debt and only take that and leave the rest of it in there and leave it alone. That will only take a hit on part of the money and then save up for your down payment. Now, there's something here. You and your wife got to talk about this to figure this out together. But I don't like what I'm hearing here. Other than you both came to the party with debt, and it might be you want to get rid of the debt, and then we're going to put everything together in one household. Right? Marriage is two becoming one. And I'm not getting biblical on you because I am not a biblical guy. Marriage is two becoming one. The purpose of marriage is to bond to your partner till you die under a sworn commitment to each other to be there for each other, to have and to hold until death parts you. Sickness and health. Good times and bad. Kids born with the birth defect, you come together and you help that kid. But we'll keep our money separate. If you're going to win with money as a couple, you got to put your money together. And I don't want to start a fight in your family, and if it absolutely doesn't work, fine, it doesn't work, stick to the way you are. But in general, I've always found that couples that keep their finances separate never become what they can become as a couple and financially. And it doesn't protect you at all in the event of a divorce. Because the, divorce, the, 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 the state will view all of the property as community property, Period. So it doesn't help in that situation when you get through this and you start accumulating to accumulate separately. And I know people that do this, it drives me crazy. Well, you know, my half of the mortgage, what the hell are you talking about? So what's going to happen if one of you loses their job? Are you going to foreclose on the other one? It doesn't make sense. Put your finances together. Manage your finances together. Have visibility into your finances together. Do it as a couple. Win with money. Win in life. That's, that's my, my additional advice. Right, let's take another one. little quick one here on a defensive carry pistol from Drew. Drew says, Hi, Jack. I was listening to episode 2213 when you discussed high-point pistols and carbines as reliable weapons. Uh, and I, I basically didn't. I said I do not recommend the high-point pistols as a carry gun. There's plenty of stuff out there in their price range, maybe a little bit more that's better, just to be clear. He says, I have a suggestion for a great pistol at a similar price point for newer shooters. The Taurus G2C has a street price of $200 to $250. Very concealable, easy to shoot. I bought one and put a 1,000 rounds through it with just factory grease. As I assume, many new shooters will not even grease their guns. I'm happy to report zero malfunctions out of that pistol. Thanks for a great show. Drew. Drew, I think it's a great recommendation. I'll just let you know that there is no longer um, a Taurus G2C. There is a G2, and it's pretty much the same gun with some new modifications. It's actually called, now it's called the Millennium G2. And again, it's very similar, and it is still about the same price point, and it's a great carry gun. I would carry that gun and trust my life to it. And I wouldn't apologize for it. And I look people like, if you don't have a Glock, you're wrong. Well, that's you. That's fine. Glocks are fine guns if you like ugly guns that don't shoot accurately, as far as I'm concerned. I, I, I know locks are accurate for some people. I just don't shoot them well. I never have. And anything with that stupid block profile to it and that weird grip angle, I just don't shoot as well. So I'd rather shoot well. Um, I have not shot this particular exact gun, uh, though I've shot one very, very similar to it, also made by Taurus. 
uh, that uh, my brother-in-law, who's a police officer, uh, was given by his department as an award for some type of thing, as a, as a, you know, and he carries it now as a backup gun. He brought it up to our place that we had in Arkansas. He shot it, like most cops, not that great a shot. He goes, well, they're, you know, they're really not that accurate at that far out. And then I took it and busted a whole bunch of wood blocks we had put out with it. Uh, and I liked it. I thought it shot very well. I thought it was very manageable as far as control, recoil, etc. I would definitely recommend it. I have a link to where you can check it out on Taurus's website. But, yeah, the G2C has been discontinued and replaced with the Millennium G2. Next one comes from Caitlin. Caitlin says, We recently bought a house in the hot, dry climate with acidic clay soils, coastal Western Australia, outback. We waited until the end of summer to start planting trees, some in pots, others in the ground, after we broke the soil up and mixed it with potting mix and manure. Found local products similar to your fertility wrecks as well. Uh, everything has been growing fantastic except the blueberry bush. Neither of us had grown it before. We didn't realize it's pretty much the most acidic-loving plant there is. We planted it in an old wheelbarrow with regular potting mix and wood mulch on top of it, and it is not happy. Until our rainwater tank fills up, we are also stuck watering it with hard water that is piped from a river 700 kilometers away. If we'd realized beforehand we had planted it direct in the ground, but I didn't think it would survive transplant now, so I'm not sure what to do. Uh, what would love any advice you have? Thanks for the situation, Caitlin. Uh, I would go ahead and plant it in the ground. If it dies, it dies. It's a blueberry bush. It's okay to kill some plants. And it's, it, it, I'm going to tell you that it's either going to die in your pot or it's going to have a chance to live in the ground. Uh, if you're hitting it with, and, and so, like, the other thing, though, is you're going to have this uh, alkaline water that is the only water that you have available. Well, if you have incredibly acidic soil, then your water will probably not have too much of an effect overall on the soil, certainly not have to take it away from the blueberry world. In the end, this is actually the complete opposite of what I usually end up having to tell people. When I first read your question, I'm like, put it in a pot, <laughs> don't even bother, you know, and then give it the exact soil it wants. Here's the other thing you can do. You can make a soil mix up for a pot that's exactly what blueberries want and put it in there. Now, again, you, you I know that you're stuck with this alkaline water, um, and that's why I recommend putting it in the ground. The ground is going to be much better at maintaining its pH than a pot. Pot is a closed system. Ground is an open system. And you're, you're going to find most likely that And this is why I always say, well, if you can't grow in your ground, put it in a pot and then set, set things the way you want in there. You will never amend the ground on large scale that's highly acidic to be alkaline or that's highly alkaline to be acidic. You'll always fight it and you'll always lose. So either you know get some good azalea mix and move it to a new pot or put it in the ground, one or the other. Otherwise, it's going to die. And don't think it's, it, it's a child, right? Or it's, you know, a polar bear. It's a blueberry bush. If it dies, it dies. Get a new one. They're not that expensive. Let's take another one. So next one actually came as an expert question from Jerry. Uh, and it says, for Charles Sandville or Tim Glantz or all of you would be good, or, or, or you or all three would be good. 
Uh, and I did send this to Tim and Charles, so we'll see if they come back with some, some stuff on it. It says, the price of a side-by-side seems ridiculous. He's talking about UTVs here. Uh, you know, like a four-wheeler, but a side-by-side where two people can sit in instead of one that you ride like a motorcycle. Uh, at least for my needs. I'm wondering about stripping down an old truck to serve the same function. I have a 10-acre homestead and a 94 F-150 4x4 that the cabin better about to fall off due to rust. I've had a thought about stripping off as much as possible and rebuilding it into something that would fill a need of hauling stuff around my property. Keeping a street legal would be a plus. I've also heard of people doing something similar with a geo tracker, or an old small Jeep would also work, but they're not that easy to find compared to a pickup truck. Um, I, I don't. I'm not going to get into like how you'd keep it street legal and all. I'll tell you, I, I like the general idea. My issue with doing it with an F-150 is that you don't have... See, you talk about geo-trackers. It's a small, light vehicle with a short wheelbase. Uh, old Jeep, small, light vehicle with a short wheelbase. The side-by-side UTV, small, light vehicle with a short wheelbase. So, I'm not saying not to do it with your F-150. I'm just saying, like, here's what you got to think about with it. And we'll see if Tim and... Charles come back with other thoughts. I know Tim's going to say, get an old Jeep. They're everywhere until you try to find one. And I don't know what he's talking about. I can never find one without, you know, I'd just be better off buying a new Jeep, it seems like. Um, so I used to hunt this place for, for wild pigs. And it was kind of like a guided hunt operation. And this guy had two Ford Bronco 2s that he'd just basically taken a torch and cut the roof off of them. Cut and took the doors off of them. And they were very much like a UTV. And I think that's pretty much it. He put some uh, some good off-road tires on them uh, that were kind of wide, like about as wide as you could without really modifying the Bronco 2, which is a pretty small vehicle. And they worked perfectly. And let's talk about why they worked so well. Because the everything on the roof side was off. They were easy for people to jump in and jump out of. You know, hauling stuff, throwing pigs in the back, and all that stuff was really easy to do, like a side-by-side. But the big thing is the short wheelbase and the relatively lightweight of the vehicle makes it a lot easier on the land than a full-size truck. So one of the big things you get out of these UTVs is a lot less pasture damage, land damage, etc. It's not just where they can go and where they can get to, but what the place they went through looks like after they do it. Now, you get stuff muddy enough or whatever, they make a mess. We just all understand there's times when we should probably not use our wheel vehicles if we can on our land. But that's one of the reasons people use a side-by-side softer on the land. So that's to me, that's kind of your big hang-up. Now, if anybody's done anything like this, especially with an F-150, I'd be interested to hear about it. You know, it's a four-wheel drive truck. So with four-wheel low setting, if you can't go there, you probably shouldn't anyway. So that's that's probably good. Um, if you have the truck anyway and it's ready to fall apart from a body standpoint, there's no real expense. And it doesn't make sense to go out and find one of these other vehicles and incur the expense unless you can trade it. You know, if you can find someone with a, a short wheelbase four-wheel drive vehicle who'd like your truck as a project truck and you want their thing as a project thing then maybe that makes sense. But I'd love to hear from other people that maybe have done this, and we'll see what uh, Charles and Tim come back with. Both of them will probably give you far more detailed and better answers than I can. Next question comes from Mark in Oklahoma. He says, where do I start fixing my property's drainage issues? I have two and a half acres in northeastern Oklahoma, and I have a major problem with water drainage and runoff. 
After a couple days of rain, my property stays marshy for weeks. I've lived here for five years. First two years weren't bad, but the last few years it takes forever for the ground to dry out. I can't mow my yard because the lawnmower gets stuck in the mud. I can't drive my trucks on the parts of the property either because it gets stuck too. And I'm thinking I need to have dirt brought in to fill in some of these areas, but maybe that will just make the problem worse. There are old French drains dug on parts of the property that may need to be redone. Where do I go for advice on controlling water in the ground? A landscaping company? Where do I find a local professional expertise and services to read the land and plant some remediation? This isn't my area of expertise. Thank you, Mark B. I think most landscaping companies would be able to help you with this. And, and maybe or maybe not, you'll want to do whatever it is that they want to do to your property. Um, you know, I, that, that kind of remains to be seen, so to say. Uh, but I'll give you a possible, and I'm not going to say this is going to work, and I don't want you to just go do it because I don't have any idea of exactly what your property's like. But believe it or not, swales might work really well for you, especially swales tied into ponds. We have all this water, we have this muddy dirt, and it's pooling in certain areas and The, the, the natural thought is if we bring dirt in there, we raise that area, the water won't pull there. And it's reasonably well thought out. Okay, It's not, it's not a, a bad idea in of itself. Um, however, if we fill that hole in, where does the water go? Why does it no why does that actually that does work if you bring enough dirt in to a degree anyway that does work why does it work well it works because it eliminates this depression and it causes the water to have to be more evenly distributed so instead of the water being concentrated in the hole it's evenly distributed across the entirety of of an area and therefore it's less concentrated and therefore it dries up faster and it's less damaging Okay. What do swells do to water? They spread it out. Including, we could do swales on a key line design uh, on like a one degree pitch where we actually move the water. And we could take a one type of solution here. We could take these low areas and spread the water out from above. So if you have a low area, there has to be a point that water is entering it from. And if we put swales in at that catch point, then only the water that falls directly in that hole goes in that hole. So what's happening is the water's running across and through your land down into the hole. So if we put a, a swale in there above that hole with a one-degree pitch and move the water out to the ridge lines, and I know on two and a half acres you don't really have ridge lines, but it's the same thing topographically, we spread the water out. And we, we dry up the valley and we wet down the drier parts and we even things out. That's one possibility. Straight up, plain old, regular swales above the holes will do the same thing. They'll spread the water out. However, if you, if you have the amount of rainfall you do, the type of soil types you do, eventually those swales infiltrate so much water that hole might fill up with water below grade. And it might make the problem worse. Again, it, oh, this is a, one of those things you have to have some design understanding, and swells may not be the right thing here. But what about the other option, though? What if we excavate, assuming we have soil that will hold water, we have enough clay to work with, what if we excavate that area and put a great big catchment swell in and actually increase the catchment and put a great big pond in? 
We go as deep as we can and as big as we can with what we want to give up. Well, now what happens? Problems become a solution. Instead of that water puddling and being a muddy problem, we move the water into a beautiful pond that increases the value of our property that we can fish in, etc. And on a property like you're describing, it seems like it would be fairly easy to do. It seems like you already have some natural pond sites. Assuming they're in a place that logistically works, it might not be very expensive. It might not cost any more to put a couple small catchment swells in and a couple small flood control ponds that add value to property than it would be to redo all kind of drainage all through the whole damn thing to make the water go away. We really do want the water. Because I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. The rainy season will end for you, and you're going to be emailing me telling me how dry everything is. So if we can put that water into the ground as a battery in a more ideal manner, we might be able to do this for less money or the same money as something that just basically drives the property out. And then you have a lot more value to it. I, I do think that any kind of landscaping, excavating local company would be someone to talk to about. It would be the kind of thing you make a call. If they can't help you, do you know somebody that can? Do you know somebody who's – and that's how you sleuth that out on your local resources. I think if you're open to the idea of some earthworks here and pond going in, if I were you, I would contact Nicholas Ferguson from our expert council directly about at least doing a very inexpensive – you know, over the internet initial consultation and seeing maybe if it makes sense to have him coming in direct because then any equipment operator that can follow direction can, he, I'm sure this is not a project bigger than what he's capable of doing. I'll, I'll put it to you that way. Uh, and I'm not in that business. I don't do that. I, I barely have enough time to do things for myself. Uh, but Nick's a pro and it might be worth it. It's not that far of a trip for him. Uh, it will have some significant expense, but again, every other solution I can think of has significant expense. So what you want to come out with at the end is what does the most enhance the value of your property? Now, if you hate the idea of ponds, throw that idea away, and then you're, you're looking at probably bringing in some fill and putting in French drains. That, that, that's probably where you're at then. However, again, small swales that don't even look like swales, that I mean you could just drive over with a tractor if you do them right, can move that water. You, you, I mean, if you, as long as you figure out how to get above that point, I'm talking about a swale that you could install with, like, you could use a, uh, a rototiller and a hoe to make these little divot swales, little flat pass swales, make two or three passes with the rototiller, you know, to get the width that you want, and then rake them out kind of like flat, like a sidewalk, and, and, and push that water out to the sides. And again, you can do that on a, a slight pitch that really moves the water. Uh, but I would, again, I'd talk to Nick about that because it's not something I'm comfortable doing with as little information as I have, and it's not something I have the time to do the right job for you because I don't do consulting like that. And, and Nick, I think, would be the perfect guy to talk to about this. And if you have any trouble getting in touch with Nick, he's at homegrownliberty.com. But if you'd like a direct introduction, just email me, dude. Put TSPC in the subject line, and uh, I'll link you and Nick up, and you can take it from there. So this next one is asking about garlic. It's from Tandy, and it says, Do you know how roasting garlics affect its health benefits? I love raw garlic, cooking with garlic, and roasting garlic. I find conflicting results about the effect roasting has on garlic's health benefits. Any ideas or insights? Thanks, Tandy. Um, so 
in general, when we cook garlic for any length of time at all, we destroy a compound in it called allicin. And that is the most active and effective compound in garlic, and it's believed to be responsible for the majority of its health benefits. So if you roast garlic, you've cooked gar garlic, you've destroyed the allicin in it. And I, I don't care what conflicting uh, opinion you found on that. This is not one of those worlds where it's about your opinion. Uh, this is a Daniel Patrick Moynihan thing. Everybody is entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. This has been well studied and well tested. And we know that heat destroys this active compound, the end infinity. What does that mean? Does that mean you shouldn't roast garlic or cook with garlic? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means like if you want the full health benefits of garlic without taking a supplement of garlic, which I don't think is necessary, you need to have two, three, four meals a week that contain some uncooked garlic. And it doesn't need to be a lot. And I mean, a lot of times what we'll do is like we make our salad dressings with, with garlic. We make, you know, salsas with garlic, a little chopped garlic and guacamole. Um, if you want garlic flavor on your food, you'll find that you actually get a lot more flavor from uncooked garlic than you do from cooked garlic. Uh, now, roasted garlic is just, God, it's so good. And I understand wanting that flavor. But you can cook with that and just take a small amount of chopped garlic and sprinkle it on the top of your food as though it were salt, let's say. And thus, if they were salt for the average person, I put way more salt on my food than I think most people do, but um, just a little bit, a little sprinkle of it here and there. And, and then you've got the raw and the cooked together. And, and there's really no way around this. There's, there's no way to cook garlic, because cook involves heat, without destroying the Allison. Uh, next up, Eric sends me an email. Jack was wrong email, apparently, and I believe he's probably right. Uh, Eric says... On your 51818 question about pumps, and the guy asked about moving water 90 feet with a solar-powered pump, and I said, I wouldn't do it. These pumps take, you know, one and a half, two horsepower. That's a lot of energy. You know, there's other ways to do some water catchment or whatever. And we've had several people talk about similar things. He says, hey, Jack, I love the show. In reference to the man from New York's question about pumping water from his spring, I'm doing almost, almost exactly what he is wanting to do with a $75 Chinese pump that is directly wired to a $200 PV panel. The pump only pulls 50 watts and pumps 1.5 gallons a minute, uh, 1,000 feet to an elevation 90 feet above the spring. 1.5 gallons a minute is plenty if you're pumping to a cistern. Okay. Um, this fills the holding tank, and from there I use a large pump to pressurize my home's water system. The cost of burying the three-quarter line was by far the costliest part of the project, but the pump and panel were cheap. I ran poly pipe over the ground for nine months of the year until I was able to bury it. Thanks for all you've taught me. Have a good day, Eric. Well, Eric, thank you. And another person said that basically an RV pump uh, would do it as well. And uh, there's a, I think it's called a Flowmaster or something like that. Or, uh, let me see if I can figure out what that is real quick for you guys. Yeah, I checked it. It's what I thought it was called. SureFlow makes them. S-H-U-R-F-L-O. Uh, as a recommendation originally came from Stephen Harris. Uh, I have one of these attached to my water catchment tanks um, that runs on AC. And you can get AC or DC models of these. And the ones that are AC 
are just the exact same ones that are DC with basically a power inverter attached to them so that they can run off of AC. So if you were to find like a used one that's AC, you can basically take that off and it will run DC. We actually had a situation where somehow we ended up with a broken one. I think this was in West Virginia. I don't remember exactly. But we had an AC one and a DC one, and we took the part off of one and swapped it with the other and then returned the other one because we needed it now. And uh, so they, they're interchangeable if you get the right model. But again, SureFlow, S-H-U-R-F-L-O, uh, that probably will work for that. But, I mean, you got to do all your math and check yourself. I'd love to hear back from uh, Eric here when you say you used a $75 Chinese pump. What one? Tell us. I'd like to know so I can actually give a, a better recommendation to people on that one. Um, next one comes from Brian. Brian says, is it possible to make a non-alcoholic me? Background, I used to be an alcoholic, but I've been out of it for 12 years now. But back in the day, I loved some mead, but it was a commercial brewed. I also brew my own ales, but obviously not for many years. Thanks, uh, Brian. Brian, you, you probably don't want to drink a non-alcoholic mead. I can tell you how to do it. Um, and it's simply a matter of once you're done making it, you then would heat it and hold it at temperature high enough, long enough to push the alcohol off. I can't tell you exactly what that temperature is, and I don't tell you how long it is because I haven't looked it up, but if you wanted to, that's how you would do it. And it would probably taste like ass after you did that. If you think I'm not, and you can do it with beer. You can do the same thing. You can make a beer, and you can make your own non-alcoholic beer. And it, it's all you got to do is bring the temperature high enough for long enough. And it's, if you think about what a still is, Right, A still is basically a device where we heat liquid with alcohol in it, and the alcohol vapors evaporate before the boiling point, and they go through a condenser, and we distill it. So if you don't put the lid on a still, all the alcohol just goes up in the air. So that can be done, and there's, there's form. I, I remember reading about this back when I was a big-time home brewer, and uh, I had a friend... That was a, he just didn't drink alcohol. It wasn't your situation. He just didn't drink alcohol, but he 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 drank you know near beer type stuff, O'Doul's, etc. And uh, he said, "Hey man, won't you see if you can figure out how to make some beer for me that's you know non-alcoholic?" And I did make a batch of it, and it wasn't very good um, at all, in my opinion, nor his. He went back to his O'Doul's. Um, And so I don't know that I would recommend that. Now, I do think there's a way for you to, to, to have something that's made with honey and has the benefits of fermentation without the alcohol, and that would be to look in maybe brewing kombucha. And I think you can make kombucha as sweet or as tart as you want. I'm not a huge fan of it, but it might be something to look at, and that might let you have a beverage that you enjoy that has the flavor of the honey involved with it, that has a lot of health benefits without going into a world that you need to stay away from. I, I almost am not comfortable telling somebody who is a well-recovered alcoholic, go ahead and start brewing mead and cooking the alcohol off of it. I, I think that's kind of like telling a person that's not experienced with venomous snakes to go get a rattlesnake and just don't touch it and you'll be okay. When that person gets bit, you know you're partially responsible for it. So, Uh, I would look into doing some other type of non-alcoholic fermentation um, and, you know, seeing where that takes you. 
course, I always reserve the right to be wrong. And if someone out there has made a drinkable, enjoyable, non-alcoholic mead, let us know how you did it. Um, and maybe you can hook up with this dude and send him a bottle of it. And if he likes it, then it's worth doing. And, hell, I'd try it. Um, but I, I don't think I'm going to like it. Um, next up, I got a question today. And this just t ties right in with uh, the item of the day. And it's why I... Uh, decided to make today's item of the day the item of the day. Uh, Timothy asked me, can you send me an episode where you covered selling your house? Thanks for your time, Tim. And uh, I thought, well, I'll just put selling house, sell your house, etc. into the search box. And I'm sure I did an episode, and I really thought I did an episode called How to Sell Your House in Any Market. And I could not find my own episode on this. And I thought, well, maybe I never did a full episode on selling houses, and I always did it as a segment. So somebody can help me out with that. Did I ever do that episode? If so, can you tell me which one it is? And if I didn't, maybe I should do a full episode on it. But we wrote, me and this guy Dustin, we wrote a book called The 1% Effect. And The 1% Effect is how I sell my house and how I've sold five houses at asking quickly. In, in all kinds of markets, including some really crappy ones. And the 1% effect relies on this thing. Every single person that buys a house settles. They're settlers. Every home buyer settles. Unless you're independently wealthy and you design your house from the ground up the way you want it with no concern of cost, you settle. And even when people build houses, they generally sell because they run out of budget before they run out of ideas. And the way you use this to your effect is you determine what the value of your home is. And this is the one place where a good real estate agent is actually valuable with doing a property appraisal based on the market. You could try to do this yourself, but I generally deal with real estate agents, agents even though I have to do half their damn job for them when it comes to negotiating and other things. And this stuff I'm about to tell you now, when it comes to that accurate property assessment, um, a good one is good at it. And that's something that you, I think you need to talk to more than one agent before you pick one. And if all those numbers are the same, you pick that based on who you think is going to do the best job for you. If there's divergencies in those numbers, don't just pick the one with the biggest number because they could be wrong. And pricing a property right is key to the 1% effect. So what we do is we determine that our property, based on fair market values, based on comparables, etc., is going to sell for, let's say, $210,000 thereabouts, that that would be the listing price. Well, then we need to look at properties that are priced on the market right now between $200,000 and $220,000. And everywhere that we can, we need to do just 1% better than those properties. If at that property uh, level, generally people have uh, linoleum or what do you ever call it, the cheap countertops, we'll put in low-end granite or composite, or something like that. Same with floors. Same with paint. Everything that we look at, we, we don't try to be the best. We just want to be a little tiny bit better, 1% better, everywhere that we can, in every place that makes sense for us. Because the person that's sitting there 
with a price range of $200,000 to $220,000, which would probably be about where... See, that person's probably not going to look at a $180,000 house. And they're probably not going to look at a $300,000 house. They have a budget. They're going to look in about $20,000 to $30,000 range of that budget. And that means every house they look at is going to be very similar from a standpoint of its amenities, its location, the schools. It's all going to be very much the same. And they're going to have to settle. The husband and wife are going to argue that this room's not big enough for their kids, that this one, you know, has too much work to be done. All the stupid shit you see in the, the you know, the, the TV shows on, you know, house hunters and crap like that. All that stupid nonsense. That's what they're going to do. And this is why I couldn't be a real estate agent because I'd want to kill the people that I'm supposed to be helping because you shut up, okay? It's a house. They're all the same. Pick the one you want. I'll get the paperwork done. That would be my clothes, right? But that's how it really ends up. No matter how much bullshit pantomiming they go through, in the end, they look and they pick the house that has the best in their mind that they can afford. And if you are 1% better... There is going to be the person that comes in and goes, the backyard's too small, and they will not compromise on that, and they'll buy a shittier house, and you can't change the side of your yard. That's okay. doesn't matter. There will be more than one person to look at your house. And if, it's, if you get five, six people and you've done this right, and all five or six are going to buy a house, they're not just you know tire kickers that, that, that look at houses for something to do. There's a value in that too, by the way. I'll talk about that in a bit for, for you being the one that does and does that. Um, If one of them's going to buy a house, one of them probably going to buy your house. That small a number, even if the market's not that good. Because what they're going to do is they're going to say, well, this house is about the same number of square footage as most of the other houses, and everything's nice. And then it's important to make the right decisions about those upgrades, paint colors, etc. All of that's in a book called The 1% Effect that I wrote along with Dustin DeFriest. And it's three bucks. That book's three dollars on Amazon. Uh, if you buy it for Kindle, it's an electronic book only. Or if you have Kindle Unlimited, it's free. And it's today's TSP Amazon item of the day. So if you want to support this show, you know that you can always do your online shopping at a little website called tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. No matter what you buy, if you go there first, you help support the Survival Podcast. The work we do, you can see all my reviews and my own review today of this particular book. But that is, and it is more complicated than that. And if I did a whole show on it, I would break down each thing. Are you guys interested in that? Let me know, that type of thing. Um, I would break it down further. But for three bucks, you can get the book. And if you have Kindle Unlimited, you can get it for free. I mean, I, I, so I don't think there's a financial hurdle there for anyone. I have already heard from people that said that they know they made thousands of dollars more on their home because of this book. I heard from one guy that said, I am a real estate agent, and if everybody out there knew what you know and what you tell people, I wouldn't have a job anymore. All the things they think we do, this is all we really do. I also talk about documenting everything in a book. You make a book. That book says... 
Here's all the appliances in the house. Here's how they're warrantied. Here's how they're serviced. Here's how you fix this. Here's what happens if this goes wrong. You do this to put it back the way it's supposed to be. Here's all the Chinese places that deliver. Here's all the pizza places that deliver. Here's where your kids are going to go to school. Here's the, the, the principal's name of the, the elementary, the middle, and the high school. Whatever you can come up with, you put it in a big three-ring binder and you organize it. And you sit that thing right on the table. And you make damn sure that every Asian that shows that house knows that book is there. And you tie it down with something so it can't go away. Like put a chain on it and lock it to something so that they don't walk away with it. But every buyer that comes in there is going to pick that freaking book up and go, Oh, I didn't know this neighborhood had that. Oh, I, I, I'm a little bit worried about the gas furnace. Oh, here's the name of the company that takes care of that. Oh, here's, you know, if you have a propane tank, here's the company that fills the propane tank. Huh. It, 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 just everything. Well, my kids are going to be going to this school. Teacher's Mrs. Johnson. Here's her phone number. She's never going to call that number. But do you see? See, you're selling the sizzle. Well, these people really must care about their home. Look, everything's nice. They know everything about the neighborhood. God, we're lucky that we found. Can you believe our luck that we found a place like this? No. Can you believe your luck that the person that, that that's selling the house understands the one percent effect? That's all in the book. Check it out. Again, three bucks. The other way you can help us, become a member of the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. Remember, this week only, all the way until Friday, you can get the MSB for $25. Bucks. Discount code BACON. Because a militant vegan that flipped this shit on me one too many times on uh, Facebook, I created a sale in his honor. Uh, Travis Hip, BACON. And here's how the deal works. You can buy the MSB for $25 bucks versus $50. You put the term bacon in, you get that price. You have to, on your honor promise, in the next week, you will eat an extra pound of bacon, more than you would have normally eaten. And you must give some form of bacon to a friend in a, as a gift, and you must do that in honor of Travis the Troll. So there you go. Don't forget the bacon sale. That brings us to our song of the day. I love this song, man. This is one of those songs, you know, you just forget about some really great music. This goes all the way back to the 70s. Uh, and it's called Easy by the Commodores. Uh, it was released in 1977. Uh, Lionel Richie, of course, was the lead singer. He went solo in 81. And I think that once the Commodores started doing music like this and people heard his real vocal talent, And his real talent as a, as a, as a uh, songwriter, that I kind of set that course where we were going to have songs like Alone and stuff like that from Lionel Richie as a solo artist. Um, this song, Easy, is about a relationship that needs to end. Basically, the guy is given everything. Uh, the guitarist... Uh, from this uh, song is a guy named Thomas McClary. And he says, it was a tricky business. When you have lyrics in a song that say, why in the world would anybody put chains on me? I've paid my dues to make it. You have to match the intensity of those lyrics to a sound and a feeling that the music portrays the same intensity in the same context of what you're saying. Um, that's kind of drives home how how deep this song is. Basically, this guy's saying, I gave you everything. I did everything I could. I have nothing left. And I know 
there's nothing good for me at this point. So I have to leave. And I'm leaving easy, like a Sunday morning. Now where that came from, um, this is from Lionel Richie. He said, easy like Sunday morning lyrics. Uh, easy like Sunday morning applies to anybody who lives in a small southern town. Small southern towns die at 11.30 p.m. Saturday night. They roll up the sidewalk. So I kind of got that from my own experiences Uh, Lionel Richie was from Tuskegee, Alabama, where there's no such thing as a four-in-the-morning party. Uh, this, I don't think, has to be a southern town. This is, I think, small-town America as a whole. The streets just roll up at 11 o'clock, sometimes earlier. I remember when I, I had one of my first real girlfriends after I got a car, and sometimes I would be at her house, you know, till midnight or something, some nights. And when I would leave to go home, I remember driving through Minersville. Uh, Pennsylvania, and just not seeing a car. Already had the lights on blinker, so all the stoplights in town, they would set them to blinking, so they would basically turn into stop signs at night. There was no reason for the lights to actually you know, function as a normal traffic light. So I get that. And I get the feeling, too. Like, if you listen to this song, it almost sounds like a love song, but it really is. It's a, it's a, it's a breakup song. But yet he's easy. He's tranquil. He's relaxed. Because he knows... He knows he did all he could. He knows he, you know, when we talk about playing a game or something, he left it all on the field. There's nothing else for me here. So I have to be at peace with this. And I think there's a lesson in that for music, for, for everybody. There, there will be toxic relationships in your life. They won't necessarily be romantic. They may be. Sometimes it'll just be a friendship. Sometimes it'll be a family member. And there are times when you have to walk away from toxic relationships. My litmus test with friends If I don't want to be a little bit more like you in some way, we're probably not going to be close friends. Because that means that everything about you, there's something that if I'm more like you, I'm less of what I want to be. I think good friends raise the expectation level of each other. And so when, I'm, when, I, when I find people that I really bring into my circle of friends, there's something about them that I want to be more like. I, I aspire to be a better man and emulate what they're doing. And hopefully they feel the same way about me. So if you're in a relationship where, with someone where you feel like all this person does is take, and you've tried, then you walk away with a peaceful, easy feeling, right? Like what the song we had last week from the Eagles. It's okay. It's okay. Self-preservation is important in our modern world. It's definitely a survival topic. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
dues to make it. Everybody wants me to be what they want me to be. I'm not happy when I try to fake it. No. Why me?